Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you, whether you are joining us here in person in the sanctuary or whether you are joining us online. Uh, It is so good to be with you. My name is Tyler. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here at Central. Uh, And next weekend, we will be gathering, not in here, but outside in the parking lot at 1030, one combined service. Bring your lawn chairs, bring some sunscreen, bring some water. It's not supposed to be as hot next weekend as it is this weekend, so we should be okay. But Pastor Rob will be wrapping up this series next weekend as he talks about chapter 15 and 16. And so each week we've been taking another chapter in the book of Romans uh, and trying to wrestle with what Paul is saying here. And today we are going to talk a little bit, think a little bit about peace. Peace. I can't really say that I was the poster child for peace when I was growing up. I was a middle child, and so obviously I had a very tough life, as only middle children can attest. Uh, Everything was not my fault, and everything got blamed on me, right? But I I wasn't a poster child for peace. In fact, I was probably known more for being an instigator, but also being able to kind of get myself out of those situations where I probably should have gotten in trouble. Uh, There was one story that I remembered this week of me and my brother Eric, my older brother Eric. And we were in this argument. I don't even remember what we were arguing about. But at one point, as it was getting more and more heated, I was just getting so frustrated with Eric that finally I just wound up and punched him. And being an older brother, he went right back at me. And we were going at it until one of our parents broke us up, and then they were trying to get to the bottom of what had just happened. And I said, okay, what happened? Who started it? And being the one that threw the first punch, I knew I had to think of something, and so here's how I framed it. I said, well, Eric, Eric hit back first. He was the first one to hit back, so he's got to be the one at fault here. Not a poster child for peace. But peace is one of those interesting ideas, because I think we all, I can say this pretty confidently, we all want peace. Who doesn't want peace? If you're sitting in here today and someone invited you or you're watching online because you're with someone who's watching and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, the the religion, the faith thing just doesn't seem to be for you. My guess is you still desire peace in your life and in the world around you. And for Christians, certainly we read all throughout scripture about God being a God of peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And we desire peace, but it sometimes feels like peace is this unrealistic, utopian dream when we look around our world. Because I think the reality is there are so many things that we experience and encounter in life that divide us, that causes division. Some of them are a little bit more lighthearted. A couple weeks ago, uh, the NCAA, ESPN, they all released their preseason top 25 poll for football. And guess who wasn't on it? The University of Michigan. What a joyful, glorious day. And you don't have to tell me as a state fan, well, state's not on it either. I don't even care. It was just enough for me to not see Michigan on the top 25. It was a great day. (laughs) I haven't been booed often, but... There it is. Or maybe this one. This one might actually step on more toes than that one. I don't think that Donna's Donuts are the best donuts in town. 
I got a couple claps and a lot of like surprise guys. I can just leave now, I guess. But there are some things that are fun to be divided on. A house divided, football, donuts. But there's a lot of things that are much heavier, much more serious, that we are divided on. There's a whole list of topics and words that if I said them from the platform, we would feel the tension in the room just begin to rise. And the hard thing, the sad thing is for us as a church, as Christians, we're not exempt from this. Even between believers, we sense this tension, this dividedness that's a reality. And I know there's probably some that would say, well, I just want to focus on the things that unite us, not the things that divide us. And I get that, and there's probably some merit in that. But as I think about it, I don't think that we can come to a place of peace just by ignoring or burying our heads in the sand to the things that truly divide us. And so what are we left to do? As people and as Christians, what do we do in the face of this dividedness, in the face of this lack of peace that we feel and sense all around us? Like I said, we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 14 today. But before we get there, there's a couple things that I think will help us understand this passage a little bit more fully. The first thing is I want to go back and kind of really quickly overview the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul is writing this book to the church in Rome. And for a lot of folks, they think that the main point, Paul's thesis, if you will, is this idea of righteousness by faith. And certainly that was important to Paul. That was really important to him, and we see that all throughout the book of Romans. But probably the more accurate thesis for Paul is this idea of the universal nature of the gospel. And what I mean by that, the universal nature of the gospel, is that this righteousness through faith, this gospel, is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. It's not just for the ones who have always heard that they're in, but this gospel is universal and that it's for all people. And this was kind of revolutionary when this was written. And people were wrestling and trying to figure out what does this mean? And so Paul kind of overviews this, looking at the past and the present and the future. And then chapters 12 through 14 are kind of Paul's way of saying, okay, this is how we do it. This is how we actually live into this. So that's the first thing I think is important for us to remember. The second thing is kind of a historical event that took place around the time that Paul was writing this. A few years earlier, there was an emperor in Rome, Claudius. And as a way to try to dispel some of the potential social uprising or tension, Claudius made this edict to exile all of the Jews out of Rome. We can read about this in Acts chapter 18. And so all of these Jews and Jewish Christians who were living in Rome had to leave and go find somewhere else to live. And a few years later, after Claudius was not the emperor, Nero didn't really care about that and so kind of lifted that edict. And some of these Jewish Christians began to come back to Rome. The problem was, is you had this group of Jewish Christians now trying to coexist with the group that had already been there, these Gentile Christians. And these two groups saw life completely different. For the Jewish Christians, they saw life through the eyes of the Torah. 
meaning that their practices and their habits were formed around things like a kosher diet and and these Sabbath practices. And these Gentile Christians who didn't grow up with this framework didn't prioritize and put the same emphasis that these Jewish Christians did. And so you had these people who saw life from very different perspectives. And for the Jewish Christians, this wasn't just a matter of preference. Getting back to some of the things that divide us. This isn't like whether pineapple belongs on pizza or not. And it doesn't. But that's a matter of preference, right? And for these Jewish Christians, this wasn't a matter of preference, but this was about their history, their culture, their ethnicity. This was foundational for how they saw life. This fall, our students, our junior high and senior high students, uh, several times this fall are going to be wrestling with what we're calling the three big questions. The questions of who am I, where do I fit, and what difference do I make? Who am I, where do I fit, and what difference do I make? Which are questions about identity, belonging, and purpose. The reality is we all wrestle with these questions of identity, belonging, and purpose, but for teenagers, these questions are at right underneath the surface of pretty much everything that they're dealing with. And for these Jewish Christians, this Torah way of life, this kosher diet and Sabbath practices was about their identity, their belonging, and their purpose. And so here in chapters 12 through 16, but specifically today, Paul is writing, imploring these two groups who are living together, who are coexisting, to learn to live at peace with one another. And and this peace isn't like the who's at the end of How the Grinch Stole Christmas who are just standing there holding hands and singing kumbaya. For Paul, this was so much deeper and more transformative. And for Paul, what he saw is if they couldn't figure this out, what would happen is there would be this inevitable split in the church and you would have the Jewish Christian church over here and the Gentile Christian church over here. And for Paul, that would undercut all of God's mission of trying to redeem and restore all of creation. All the way back to Abraham in the Old Testament who said that the Israelites are going to be a blessing to the entire world. And so for Paul, there's a lot at stake here as he writes to these groups of people. If we open our Bibles, and I'm using my Bible, I know we had those journals this year, but I got a journal and then we, you took them all And so someone the next week was like, hey, do you have any more journals? And we were out of them, so I gave them mine. And then we ordered more, and so I grabbed another one. The next week, we were out of them again, and someone asked for a journal, so I gave them mine. And finally, I said, okay, I'm just going to read my Bible this year. So it's a different-looking book, but it's the same translation as you have if you have your journals with you today. But Romans 14. And right away, Paul gets into these two groups that are divided, and he begins to use language of strong and weak as he addresses them. And next week, Pastor Rob's going to talk a little bit more about the strong and the weak Christians. But right away in verse 2, we see this. One person believes he or she may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Jumping down to verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his or her own mind. We're seeing these ideas of a kosher diet, these Sabbath practices, these different ways of viewing and this framework for how you saw and lived life. Paul's addressing these two diverse groups of people who are trying to coexist. But when we go back to verse 3, this is what Paul says. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him and her. I think sometimes in our English language we've lost some of the the fierceness of what Paul is writing here. We have those two words, despise, and then the next line, pass judgment. It says, the one who dis- who, let not the one who eats despise, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment. Some translations, rather than despise, have the word disdain, which again in the original Greek is, is even more severe and harsh. What Paul is saying is that these people who despise are looking at these other people as if they have no merit, no status, no value, no worth. In their interactions, they're completely devaluing these humans. But then the other group jumps right back in this, in this past judgment. This word is not just about like me uh, standing here and judging Pastor Rob for something. But this judgment, the Greek word here, speaks to this divine nature of judgment. That I'm not just judging, I'm judging as if I am in the position of God. Are those things that just this church struggled with, or are these words of caution that we need today? And so Paul lays into them for these postures, these habits. And picking up at verse 13, we're going to read a few verses together. He writes this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So by what you eat, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thus, whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. See, as I read this this week, one of the first interpretations I had, and one of the ways I think that we might misinterpret this passage, is that what Paul is saying is that, okay, you have your way of doing life, and you just do that over here, and you have your way of life, and you just do that over there. We'll just live our lives, and you just do your thing, I'll do my thing, and that's just how we'll live. It's kind of this hyper-individualism. But in fact, what Paul is calling them to is not some sort of westernized, post-enlightenment view of individualism, but actually the exact opposite, this new orientation in life, this new framework that sees and values one another even above ourselves. It's not greater autonomy or greater personal liberty, but it's this whole new transformed life that elevates others through sacrificial love. Look again at verse 15. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, underline this, you are no longer walking in love. A lot of people think that Paul wrote this letter around the same time and maybe in the same place as he wrote 1 Corinthians. And there's kind of this, this resonance here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, 
all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. In essence, just because you can do something doesn't mean you're walking in love. Because sacrificial love changes everything. And so what Paul is calling them to is this radical new sense of community that lays down your own preferences and priorities and agenda for the sake of one another, for the sake of peace. And what we see in Paul's life, but especially what we see in Jesus' life, is that peace doesn't just happen. You don't just wish for peace or think that you want peace to happen or even just pray for peace and then magically it appears. But what we see through the life of Jesus is that peace follows sacrificial love. Peace follows sacrificial love. And so if we want true, authentic, real peace, our lives need to exemplify this kind of sacrificial love that we see here in Paul, but that we see all throughout the life of Jesus. So where does that leave us now? What does that mean for us? I think the reality is that sacrificial love flips the script. It changes the game. Sacrificial love begins to ask different questions and look at things a different way, look at people a different way, interact with people a different way. Sacrificial love takes all of the arrows in our world that are pointed inward and it flips them the other way around. There's this idea that Paul doesn't ever use this exact language, but Paul's life exemplifies this. It's an idea of lived theology. Lived theology. Theology is the study of God, and so theologians are those people who study God. And oftentimes when I think of theologians, I think of uh, old men and women who are sitting in this really refined library, probably in a leather chair with first edition books all around them. But the reality is, every single one of us is a theologian. And the way that we live our lives, lived theology, the way that we live our lives demonstrates what we believe about God. That is not just the words that we can say or what we can do on a Sunday morning when we show up to church, but our lives are a testament to what we believe to be true about God. And so if we believe God to be a God of peace, how do our lives exemplify this kind of peace? And if we ever struggle to know what God is like, we don't have to look any further than Jesus. Jesus, who is God, demonstrates what this kind of sacrificial life look like, looks like. Jesus gives us the picture, the example of what this looks like. Jesus lives a life that demonstrates that peace follows sacrificial love. And so I think that leads us to a big question. A big question that as we wrestle with this, individually and collectively, it can transform our lives and our community. The question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? What we see in Paul's life, but especially what we see in Jesus' life, 
is this sacrificial love is going to cost us something. That's why it's sacrificial. It's going to cost us something. What does love require of me?